Is corporate America running a social justice scam? We'll get to the bottom of it on Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. Hey guys, welcome to Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. Uh, today we've got a really special guest. We've got a lot going on and a lot to talk about in terms of capitalism. Vince, what do we have? Well, I'm really pleased to have with us the author of now the best-selling book, uh, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, Vivek Ramaswamy joins us. Vivek, uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Glad to. Thanks for having me. It's such a fraught environment, too, right now. Uh, obviously, there's a million things going on, and I imagine we'll get to a bunch of them. But first, just the core concept of the book. When you talk about Woke Inc., what does it mean to be woke, and how is corporate America using that? Yeah, so look, being woke, there's the complicated definition, there's the simple definition. The, the complicated definition is about effectively borrowing from Marxist thought, saying that the world is governed by invisible power structures that govern the social universe, but to say that those power structures, unlike the Marxist worldview, are not governed by economic relationships, but are governed by genetically inherited attributes instead, like race, gender, and sexual orientation, to say that certain people are empowered by those structures, certain people are disempowered by those structures, and being woke refers to waking up to those power structures, hopefully to correct the injustices that arise from them. That's, you know, I think a neutral definition of what it means to be woke. I think a slightly less neutral but pithier definition is obsessing over race, gender, and sexual orientation. That's also a good way of describing what it means to be woke. Now, what happened with wokeness is it was a way of challenging the system. It was an intellectual worldview born in the academy, and it was a way about challenging prevailing power structures, about challenging the way we think about problems. And, and agree or not, there's something about that that I can personally respect about anybody who wants to challenge a prevailing orthodoxy. But what happened, and the history that I trace in the book is in the, starting with the 2008 financial crisis, when wokeness merged with capitalism and got supercharged with the muscle of corporate power, that's actually when it became unstoppable. And today, 10 years later, or over 10 years later, Wokeness is no longer about challenging the system. I believe wokeness is the system. And the question of how we got here actually traces back to its merger and its arranged marriage with our system of capitalism. That's a big part of what I talk about in the book. Jason? Yeah, I think that that's uh, really interesting. Um, first of all, I want to say that I have to uh, blame Richie and, and the good folks at the uh, Daily Caller that I haven't got an opportunity to read your book yet, uh, but I have read about your book. We'll send and, you one. We'll send you one. Yeah, please, please. I, you know, it, it's a really interesting concept. And, you know, I think conceptually that I, I agree with the foundation. I, I think that there was a little bit of uh, judgment in terms of, of your ideas about social justice in the uh, in your definition of wokeness. But when you take the baseline that the goal of capitalism is to become more efficient at capitalism, uh, I think that that makes perfect sense. And the fact that they will marry social justice in order to become uh, more efficient at selling products and gaining wealth, to me, that makes absolute sense. Um, and that <clears throat> actually has this isn't the only thing, I'm not sure that you, that you addressed this in the book, but that's not new. That's the idea behind black yeah. capitalism. It was a way to get rid of the Marxist, uh, you know, social movements that were coming out of the late 60s and 70s and out of the civil rights movement 
the way to get away from that was black capitalism was to marry capitalism to social justice and say that this is the way that we're going to see progress for African-American communities. It has never worked. Um, I guess my first question is a personal question. Um, I read about you uh, being in junior high school and you had like a traumatic event. You were a really smart uh, kid. You're obviously a very smart adult um, and you were studious and you wore glasses and you went to classes carrying your books and you were attentive uh, in, your, in your coursework and that you were kind of bullied because of that. And in one case, you were pushed down the steps that led to you having to have surgery on your hip. Um, I'm wondering, because you're anti-wokeness and you don't want to talk, it seems like uh, you think the way this, in which we talk about race uh, are flawed. I'm wondering, do you think that that, that kid pushed you down the steps? And that it was just because you were studious and attentive in class or could it be, have been there could have been some racial implications in that being that you were from a small town in Ohio and your name is Vivek uh, Ramaswamy and you had a different ethnicity a different religion um, do you think that any of those could have played a role in in you being personally attacked and targeted on on that occasion it's, it's hard to say for sure, right? The answer is, I don't know. I think that there's a mix of it, though. I think it's all, it's all packed into what the 1990s expectation was for a kid of Indian immigrants with funny names that was good at science class, that wears glasses and carries go, go thick glasses and goes from class to class carrying his books. What is expectation, what their expectations of that kid would be for how good they are at basketball, for example, which may, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a phenom by any stretch, but I think that, you know, you're not supposed to be athletic. That's not supposed to be what, what fits the stereotype, stereotypical mold back in the 90s that you were supposed to fit as such a kid. You know, maybe that there's a new mode in which we have a nonchalance towards the pursuit of academic excellence, the rise of the cult of cool, as some have called it in the 1990s in America, that also caused us to want to, you know, pay anti-excellence payback with a vengeance, but especially to those who brought the first generation face to that same, to that same philosophy. I think all of those things are kind of inextricably linked to one another. And I think if embedded in your question is, do you think that I have ever been someone who has suffered from racism in some way? I think the answer to that question is undoubtedly yes. It has, and I've, you know, maybe through personal experiences that would be probably too long to discuss on the show. That includes from people who are from a wide range of diverse ethnic and racial backgrounds themselves from white to black to, to everything in between. Yes, I, I am sympathetic to the idea that racism exists in this country because I've experienced it and I've seen it firsthand. But where what I believe, and it's not just through those experiences, is, is a couple of things. One is, I think making yourself a victim on the back of that is a choice, is not something that happens to you. It's something that you choose to do. And I think that everyone encounters hardship of many kinds over the course of their lives. I've encountered hardship other people have encountered greater hardships than I have too. But hardship isn't the same thing as victimhood. And I think this new culture of victimhood that I think permeates nearly every community in America, again, black, white, and everywhere in between, but geographically across the board too, is I think actually a great danger and a new form 
of psychic slavery for the American soul that actually says that the thing that we're supposed to do in response to the imperfections in our society that create hardship is to each compete with how we're supposed to think of ourselves as victims in response. And I think that new mode of psychology when intellectualized is actually a really dangerous form of psychology that I think permeates our culture today. I also think the wrong way to fight, if there's one wrong way to fight racial discrimination, it is to racialize the solution to that discrimination. And I come from the John Roberts School of Thought that the best way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And agree or not, I think we ought to have a good open dialogue about it. What the woke movement says is something to the contrary. It says that actually more race consciousness is actually the answer to ending racism. Ibram Kendi in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist says, I think this is nearly an exact quote, the remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Agree or not, that's what he says. I disagree. I think that actually the right answer is to revive a shared identity that dilutes both racism and wokeism to irrelevance at once. And that while we may have come off of a decade of having celebrated our diversity and our differences, for reasons that I can understand, and there may even have been some good that came out of it, I think that we need to move forward to a new decade, a new era, where we begin to remember some of the shared ideals that bind us together as one people, irrespective of whether we're black or white, irrespective of whether we're Democrat or Republican. And that's one of the things that worries me about the topics that I write about in the book, where we used to have these apolitical spaces, these sanctuaries that brought us together. Call it Major League Baseball, call it the NFL, call it sports, call it the private sector, call it the economy, our places of work that brought us together across those divided lines. And I worry that once we inject politics and social ideology into those otherwise apolitical sanctuaries, we lose the solidarity that's a, that, that I believe is a precondition for a divided democracy to actually sustain itself. And, and I worry that once the economy itself becomes polarized, once we have a black brand and a white brand, or a Republican version of coffee or a Democratic version of coffee, as we see between Starbucks and Black Rifle, for example, today. I think it's the first step towards a dangerous path that ends, as we've seen in our history before, in civil war. And I think that absent some cultural intervention, that might be where we're heading. And so one of those forms of cultural intervention, I hope, was the book that I wrote. But that's part of the reason I wrote it. But I think that it's going to take real proactive effort to put us on a path that revives that common identity over fractious group identity, which I think has now become the default norm. You know, uh, Vivek, even if we were to say accept, let's, like, let's for a moment theoretically accept Ibram Kendi's view of the United States and the remedies for the problems that he, he claims exist in the country. If we accepted all of those things, what I think is interesting about your book is that you're getting at corporate America specifically in the way that it's using wokeism. So it'd be one thing to identify these problems and then come up with genuine solutions and then to push forward towards them. But I get the sense, based on the way you've covered corporate America in particular, that this is a bit of a facade, that they're not yeah. actually trying to remedy the things that they claim they're trying to remedy. Right. They're merely using them as signals to customers that they should engage in business with them. And that's uh, the and, part I agree with. And, and so, yeah, I figured you would, Jason. That's, I, that's the heart of the book. That's the yeah. heart of the book. The heart so of the book us, is tell actually- tell us more about that. Yeah, whatever you think about wokeness and, and, and sort of, you know, that word itself has gone undergone a journey where it has a pejorative connotation to it. It's actually not the connotation I have in mind when I use the word woke. I think 
it actually refers to a coherent worldview that it says you need to wake up certain power structures to correct injustices. Let's talk about that in the open. I think that's a fair debate to have. Whatever you think about that debate, I think that wherever you come out, I think you ought to be worried about the way corporations have been able to cynically use that debate to aggregate greater power for themselves. And, and I've seen this from the inside. I'm not a journalist reporting on my findings. I wasn't born into elite America, but I have lived in elite America for the last 15 years. And I can tell you from experience, the way that it works is that you pretend like you care about something other than profit and power precisely to gain more profit and power. And that game is wreaking havoc on American democracy because it is fostering a crisis of institutional mistrust where the institutions we're supposed to trust are rampantly lying in a way that actually has us believing none of what they have to say. And I think that crisis of institutional mistrust is actually a great dangerous force in America. I think it starts with the 2008 financial crisis where after the 08 crisis, corporations were the bad guys. And what the old left wanted to do, agree or not, was to take money from those wealthy corporate fat cats and redistribute it to poor people to help poor people. Agree or not, that's what they said. But there was the emergence of this new so-called woke left around the same time that said actually the real problem wasn't necessarily just economic injustice or poverty. It was also racism and misogyny and bigotry. But that's actually what presented the opportunity of a generation for big business in this country, for Wall Street in particular. Because if you're Wall Street, you don't love Occupy Wall Street. That's a pretty tough pill to swallow. But the new woke stuff is actually pretty easy. You applaud diversity and inclusion, put some token minorities on your boards, muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change or whatever you do after you fly in a private jet to a fancy ski town in Davos. That was actually pretty easy. And so they were happy to lend it their legitimacy, not just their money, but their legitimacy to that new woke movement. But they effectively didn't do it for free. They expected that the new left would look the other way when it came to leaving corporate power intact. And Silicon Valley did the same thing, engaging in content moderation online in ways that the newly ascendant woke left approved of. But again, they don't do it for free. They effectively expect that the new Democratic Party looks the other way when it comes to leaving their monopoly power intact. And it has worked masterfully across the board. And the net result of that arranged marriage, which if you ask me is more like mutual prostitution, was the birth of an illegitimate child, what I call the woke industrial complex, that is far more powerful than either big government or big business alone, because it can be a tool to do what either one of those can't do on their own. And I think liberals are duped into submission because they happen to love the progressive causes that these businesses are pushing today. May not be the case tomorrow, but it is the case today. Conservatives are duped into submission because their inner conscience tells them that the free market can do no wrong without recognizing that the free market that they idealize isn't actually the one that exists today. And both sides are blinded to the rise of this new Leviathan that I think is far more powerful than what Thomas Hobbes envisioned 400 years ago. It is far more powerful than what our own founding fathers envisioned 250 years ago when they set up a system of constitutional democracy with checks and balances. They did not imagine a fourth branch of government that operated outside of that check system of checks and balances that could be co-opted by the US government, by the way to engage in constitutionally prohibited censorship that the government couldn't do directly through the front door, but can use companies to do through the back door. It has been co-opted by the Chinese government to be able to undermine the moral standing of the United States by getting companies to relentlessly criticize social justice here in the US, but without saying a peep about actual human rights atrocities abroad, creating a false moral equivalence between China and the US, eroding the moral standing of the United States on the global stage. So it has a lot of unseen consequences. That's actually what I'm talking about in the book is, I do come out on a side of individual identity that isn't 
bound by genetically inherited characteristics. And that's part of what I take issue with in the woke movement. But that's the primary debate. But I'm, what I'm most interested in is actually the meta issue of how corporations have used that debate cynically to be able to advance their goals, but at the expense of American interests at every level. And that's the scam of our century. I think it's the defining scam of our generation. It's the scam that I expose in the book. Now, Vivek, I, I agree 100% with, with uh, your cynicism about uh, some of these capitalist entities and some of these corporations. There's no question about that. Where I think I find my disagreement, well, th there are a couple of small places, um, and maybe they're not that small, where I find disagreement. And that is like this idea that capitalism is neutral and apolitical on its own. Like if we just left it alone, that it would be neutral and apolitical. Am I misunderstanding? Uh, your position there. Well, I mean, and you mentioned things like, and I agree with you about diversity and inclusion and the diversity and inclusion uh, industrial complex that is, you know, an $8 billion a year business that's, you know, uh, erupted since then. And the, the, you know, cynicism around that. And the fact that I believe that that's actually been a ruse to actually, uh, to stop from actual real change. It's actually sure. just uh, something that's that's come up to divert from that and say, hey, we'll have a two hour training. We'll pay this person $100,000. It makes it look like we're actually, like we actually care. Um, I think that my, my big disagreement again is the neutrality of capitalism and this, or this idea about it being apolitical. When we think of politics, the way I define politics is, uh, that which determines and maintains power. What determines and maintains power more than capital? And well, I, I, I hear your point. And I think it's a really, I think it's a really good one and gets to kind of the heart of a, a rich intellectual debate at the heart of this. So I, I'm personally of the view that capitalism and democracy are at their best when we keep them apart from one another. And I think the right answer to our crises of institutional mistrust and our crises of culture in this country is not to force capitalism and democracy to share the same bed, but actually- They always have though. A clean divorce. That, that's, well, that's my, my so, thing is- So ahead, maybe I'm they sorry. have. They have at periods in our history, at some more than others, and I lay out a lot of that history in the book. I think we are at our best when the two institutions operate separately. And, and I'll tell you why. Look, I'll give you one example on the global stage. There's a, there a flawed policy by both Republicans and Democrats got on board in the 1990s around the philosophy of so-called democratic capitalism, using the spread of global, global capitalism as a vehicle to advance democracy abroad. That's actually was part of our longstanding policy position with respect to China. We thought we could use our money to get them to be more like us. We thought we could send Big Macs and Happy Meals and spread democracy in the process. Here is a great example of how they've turned that on its head. They are now using their money to get us to be more like them sending back Disney movies and Nike sneakers and the companies that run them that have effectively become unwitting Trojan horses in the Chinese game of undermining the moral standing of the United States, where Disney says it can't shoot a film in the state of Georgia on account of social justice concerns about preventing abortion in, in two years ago for an anti-abortion statute. But last year shoots Mulan in the Shenzhen province of China, literally ground zero of the Uyghur human rights crisis, where there are over 1 million Uyghurs enslaved in concentration camps subject to forced sterilization, communist indoctrination in one of the biggest human rights atrocities committed by a major nation since the Third Reich of Germany. And they don't say a peep. In the end of the film, they actually thank the local Shenzhen authorities 
including some of the very authorities who are responsible for those human rights atrocities. That erodes the moral standing of the United States by creating this false moral equivalence between Chinese nihilism and American idealism. And when that happens, nihilism wins every time. That's just an example geopolitically of, again, this misspent project of democratic capitalism, thinking that we could use capitalism as a vector to spread democracy. I think the same thing happens here at home, though, where we erode democracy from within, where when we put capitalist elites, investors, CEOs, I've occupied both of those positions myself, in charge of having a disproportionate say in what we should think about how we solve racial justice or how we address climate change, that too defies democracy because so, democracy depends on the idea that everyone's voice is weighted equally. Capitalism says that actually the, it's a one dollar, one vote system. And that's okay when deciding which products get voted to the top of Amazon's lists. But it's not okay, in my opinion, when it determines which ideas get voted up to the top of the marketplace of ideas. That ought to happen in the public square through free speech, open debate, where everyone's vote and everyone's voice is weighted equally. And to me, converting our democratic nor our democratically in informed discussion about normative moral issues into from a one person, one vote and one person, one voice system into a one dollar, one vote system is I think the greatest betrayal of democracy of all. It's like old world Europe where a small group of church elites and business elites used to get together behind closed doors and determine the common good. Maybe that's what they did in old world Europe. But if America was anything, it was built on the idea that we operate according to a system of democracy where everyone's vote and voice is weighted equally. And then there's the third issue where by the way, once the private sector becomes politically polarized, we lose those apolitical sanctuaries that democracy depends upon. A divided polity like ours depends on those spaces remaining apolitical. But once we lose those spaces, I think we don't have a country left anymore when you, once you have two economies that have been divided just like the two wings of, of, of our political discourse in our country. Too. So, so that's part of why both internationally, domestically, philosophically versus old world Europe and what distinguishes America from it, all of those reasons why I think actually when capitalism becomes politicized, we're actually left with neither capitalism nor democracy in the end, but a tainted version of both. Jason, well, I know you had a follow-up. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I guess the the my my follow-up first is that Vivek, I think your your next book should be about campaign finance reform because yeah. uh, of course, you know, corporations have always had influence uh, in in politics whether they're democratic politics or Republican politics. As a matter of fact, and this is the thing like with, uh, you know, wokeism, and I think your definition was really succinct and really good. Um, but when we look at a lot of other people, the way they define wokeism is that it's just a leftist, you know, uh, kind of construction. And my thing is that there is Republican wokeism. They have their own version of wokeism. They expect things from corporations. They realize the influence that corporations have and, you know, their politics are injected. And of course, we know that every politician, every major uh, politician, particularly presidential campaigns, have had their own pet billionaires. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, we talk about sure. You're right. uh, the, the discrimination that we've seen, you know, LGBT discrimination. We know that uh, I believe it's uh, the top 25 companies. Uh, in the S&P 100 donated to anti-LGBT uh, causes and, and legislation and politicians, you know, about 10 up to the tune of about $10 million. So what my point is, 
you're saying that there are these spaces that are apolitical. And like I said, any relationship between two or more people, in my opinion, is political. But if you're talking about even something that is divorced from uh, politics in the, you know, the governmental sense, uh, I just don't think that that exists in capitalism, nor has it ever. And even if you want to take politics out of things like you mentioned politics and sports, like that was a bastion without politics, that's never existed. So, you know so what I mean? We, we can talk about to, you know, MLB, you mentioned MLB, NFL, you know, I, I'm along, I'm old enough, you know, you're a little bit younger. I'm old enough to remember when you, you know, having a black quarterback was a big deal. Having black head coaches was a big deal. Right now, the you know, having in major Division One college, and I'm sorry I'm taking up this space, but major Division One colleges having a black athletic director was a big deal, uh, even though, but you had plenty of black people running across the field. That you saw all the time. Um, so again, I think uh, visibility does not necessarily mean power. And I think one of the things that, that I, I, the big disagreement I have is that there isn't, you're making it seem like there are spaces that are polit that are politically neutral and uh, away from capitalism that, in my opinion, don't really exist. So, so I, I'm sorry for taking up that space. Yeah, no, no, that was that was there was a really good point in there that I wanted to identify an area of common ground, which is that mm -hmm. I am rapidly opposed to corporate capture of the electoral system, including through large campaign contributions. I think that it is a pollution of our democracy. Now. I think that I'm disappointed in recent years to actually see the left, which had done better in calling out this issue than the right, completely abandon the keep money out of politics mantra. They used to say it 10 years ago. I don't know if you noticed, but in the last electoral cycle, you didn't hear much of that from either side. In fact, you actually got the money into politics game that both sides were playing, but this isn't a left versus right issue. It's an integrity of the democratic system issue. I don't like the influence of money in politics. I don't like it one bit. And I think that that's actually an area of common ground where, you know, look, the left was opposed to the Citizens United ruling in 2010. It was around 2010, about a little over a decade ago, because they did not like the idea of dollars influencing our electoral system and our democracy. Well, that's actually my biggest problem with stakeholder capitalism is that it is Citizens United on steroids. It says that companies not only can be permitted to make electoral contributions, it demands that companies exert their influence on matters of political importance. And that is, I think, the most dangerous form of influence of all. And here's what I'll say. As much as I don't like campaign contributions, they actually aren't as effective on the electoral outcomes as you might think. Think about, let me just, just look for a second. This isn't exactly a corporate contribution, but take a look at Michael Bloomberg, who spent all in close to a billion dollars or any other self-financed candidate or heavily concentrated financed candidate for president of the United States. And I know it's not true in every level of the system, but I'm just making a point here. They haven't been particularly successful. And I think that actually American democracy has done okay, even in the face of polluting forces like the polluting force of dollars in driving electoral outcomes. But what I worry about much more is yeah. when corporations exercise their muscle in the marketplace of ideas that determine what we can even say in our democracy. And to me, democracy is about more, Jason, than just casting a ballot every November. It's about more than just elections. That's part of the story. But to me, actually, the real measure of the health of, a, of any democracy, especially American democracy, is the percentage of people who are willing to say in public what they actually believe. And I think there's no doubt that right now, we as a people are doing abysmally on that metric. A recent survey earlier this year 
said that over 60% of Americans, including Democrats, Republicans, and independents included in the survey, 60% of Americans say they're afraid of expressing their true beliefs in public because of the current political environment. That includes fear of losing your job and also fear of your kid, and now I'm extrapolating, but fear of your kids getting a bad grade at school, fear of becoming a pariah in your own community. And I think that that is not America, that is not American democracy. And that culture of fear has completely supplanted our culture of free speech in our country. And part of that culture of fear arises when companies are able to use their economic muscle to decide what can and can't even be discussed in the public sphere, be it social media companies, be it companies firing their employees. There was, there was an employee fired from a Virginia company last year for wearing a Trump 2020 hat to work. I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what belongs in a democracy. There have been people who have been fired for making other political statements on, the, on social media on their own time. And so I'll throw a question back at you, Jason. Here's one of the solutions I propose sure. in the book. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is, I say that actually, if you can't discriminate in this country on the basis of race or sex or religion or national origin, then I say you shouldn't be able to discriminate on the basis of someone's political speech either. That if you can't be fired or deplatformed for being black or gay or Muslim or white or Jewish or Christian or whatever, then you should not be able to be fired or deplatformed simply for being an outspoken conservative or an outspoken liberal either. And yet I don't sense a lot of support from the, from the political left and even some on the political right either, but those are the kinds of solutions that I think we need to proactively take to apply the playing field evenly, where if we're gonna have protected classes at all, okay, one version is we say we trust the market to police all forms of discrimination. We don't have that. We say that we don't trust the market at all to police these forms of discrimination. Yet I personally think, and this may be controversial and you may disagree with it, I think political discrimination in this country is far more rampant today in the workplace than is racial discrimination. Uh, I think we need laws that apply those standards evenly. Yeah, we're not going to agree there, but okay. um, I, I do uh, see your point. And uh, having political, uh, you know, groups being a a, a protected class, uh, I have to think about that. I, I did read the, that 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 was something that that you actually advocate for, and I do believe, in, and it's something that I uh, have actually even you know published things about is that you know when the popular uh, phrase. In, in my line of work was, you know, safe spaces. And I've always argued against safe spaces. I believe in safe people. You know, if a student yeah. comes into my classroom you. with a Confederate flag, you know, t-shirt, I'm not going to kick him out of class or say, you can't wear that. I'm going to say, you know, let's have a conversation about it, you know, um, because how is it, what does it do if I just kick him out of class, he's just going to wear the shirt outside of class. But if I actually engage him and maybe the other students engage him, maybe we can have a discussion about why, you know, some people might find that inappropriate and he may choose to keep wearing it. He may not, but at least we can have that, that kind of open discussion. I do yeah. think that, uh, you know, the only thing that I'll say is that I think that there is a little bit of contradiction when you were saying about the guy who wore the Trump 2020 hat to work. But I thought your argument was that we should leave certain spaces uh, devoid of politics. Yeah, it's a good so, point you make. You know, like- It's a good point you make. Yeah, so, so I think if that workplace were also going to fire somebody for wearing a Biden hat to work, then I think that that's, that's something for, I mean, I personally don't think firing is the right solution. You tell them to take up the hat, but that's a, that's a tactical point. 
I think right. that I do, I do like a uh, keeping spaces apolitical, but this was a shipyard worker, right? This wasn't the CEO using the muscle of the corporation to supercharge a political effort. This wasn't a powerful investor doing it. This is a guy who works on a shipyard that wore a hat to work. Now, I, I will posit that an assumption based in my, my using that case is that they wouldn't have done the same thing on the other side. I think the facts of the case pretty well support that that was probably true. But, but to your point, you know, if it's the CEO actually pushing that ideology and using his corporate muscle, not only upon his employees, but upon his customers and using that to, to create greater share of voice in the marketplace of ideas, that's something I have a normative problem with. You're right. But, you know, that was one example among many, amongst take James Damore, who was fired from Google, that creates an allegedly open marketplace for people to discuss forums internally, but actually fires the guy when he expresses a view that defects from the orthodoxy about why there's fewer female engineers at Google than, there, than everyone, including him, would want to see as being the case. He was fired for, for expressing his views. And that's actually what bothers me most, is companies like Google pretend like they're a deliberative company where all ideas are welcome, when in fact they're companies that operate according to principles of orthodoxy. And Jason, that actually gets to, uh, you know, there's, there's actually so much common ground in what you said that I kind of want to, that I want to point out. But one of the points, one of the pieces actually back to the cynicism about corporate America is that I think there's actually three categories of companies that are out there. And if we have a well-functioning system, there's probably space for all three of them. One is the apolitical company, IBM in the 1950s, which said that actually we just don't touch politics at work, period. Okay, that's one. The second is the deliberative company, which says that all viewpoints are welcome and our employees are, are like family members and work is life and life is work. So have at it and go for your workouts and have your discussions over dinner at the office campus. We're a deliberative model. Google used to fashion itself as being in the deliberative category. And then the third category might be the category of orthodoxy that says that if you work here, here are the things you have to believe to be mission aligned with where we work. I think actually the biggest problem of all is the fact that more and more companies are in category three, but without actually admitting it while pretending like they're in category two. And I think that that dishonesty is actually part of what I take the most issue with. Now, I think another piece of common ground I want to call out for what you said. I, now, you didn't say this, but I, I assume you'll agree with this. Uh, tell me if you don't. Mm -hmm. Is that I actually have a I actually have a big problem with the response of the right recently to some of the intolerance that we've seen, the ideological intolerance that we've seen from the left. Look, I think that the greatest source of cancel culture, and by the way, people say, people use that term sloppily. Well, let me define it. Cancel culture is the use of force as a substitute for free speech and open debate as a mechanism of settling political questions. That's what cancel culture is. I think most of it in recent years has come from the progressive left. However, I worry equally about, I loved your story about if a kid is who you teach, where's a Confederate flag to the classroom, the thing you don't do isn't to kick him out of the classroom. The thing you do is engage in open debate. The answer to hate speech is not less speech, it is more speech. Well, guess what? I think that principle ought to apply in all directions. That's why I'm against critical race theory bans that we're now seeing being debated on the right. I don't think the right answer to the issue with teaching critical race theory or, or whatever you want to call it, if, if it's not exactly critical race theory, then whatever is being taught that's objectionable in schools, isn't to ban any ideology. It's to actually talk more about what we do want to be teaching our kids, talking more about an open exchange of ideas in the open square in the marketplace of ideas. And I'm actually most worried that that is how this culture war ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper, where the other side actually just adopts the methods of the original perpetrators without actually recognizing it. And both sides are going to be fighting each other while still without actually recognizing that they have just joined the same church 
merely under a different name. And I worry about the spread of victimhood culture from the left to the right. I worry about the spread of cancel culture from the left to the right. And that's a big part of why I'm writing the book is I think actually both the left and the right have lessons to learn about the basic principles that ought to guide how we engage with the other side, even if we disagree with the content of what we actually think are the solutions. Vivek, let me just jump in here on, on the critical race theory thing. Uh, I think it's interesting you bring that up. I, I uh, find myself open-minded about the solutions to uh, the use of critical race theory and sort of like the equity ideology that I think is, is poisoning a lot of sp uh, spaces in the United States uh, and, and diminishing uh, people's humanity, I don't, I don't, which I don't like. Um, but the way to address that, it, there's obviously massive debate around this. You see some states, as you noted, passing legislation to create uh, a definition of what should be taught in public schools and what should not be taught. Uh, and the answer, and the, and the people who defend that say, well, that's an obvious function because if you're gonna decide what is taught in a school, uh, the government has to do that. You have to ha have some sense of you know what is taught and what's not taught within public schools because the government is actually running those public schools. It's just really a matter of at what level does that governance come? Does the governance come from the school itself? Does it come from the, the county school board? Or does it come from some sort of state entity to include the legislature of that state? Um, yeah. So while I, I, did, I definitely recognize the value of the argument you're making, and again, as I said, I'm, a, I'm kind of unsettled on this question because yeah. I, I, I think it is meaningful to say that we should have good speech to confront bad speech. But the battle here is over, okay, what do you teach students in second grade about yep. race and identity yeah. and, and, and the and way narrowly, that they should view the world? Narrowly on that question, my own view is that I'm, I'm actually perfectly okay with, in fact, I think we need a revival of civic education and talking more about what we do want to teach in our schools. But narrowly, that the part that I think takes us down a dangerous road is when we start talking about banning any ideology. And I don't yes. think that banning ideology is something that we should be in the business of doing, even in the way we frame that in the debate. Because once you can ban one ideology, you can ban another. And just right. like, when, just like yeah. the principle I said earlier, once you turn corporations into a vehicle to advance an agenda, it can advance any agenda. Well, look, once you ban any ideology, you can start banning other ideologies too, depending on who's in power. I don't think that's the way we should go about doing it. Now, as a side note, and I don't wanna get, you know, this wasn't the main topic of discussion, I personally think that actually a really promising, promising way of addressing some of the difficult concepts we've seen being taught in schools, some of the, I think, problematic concepts we've been seeing taught in schools. I don't call it critical race theory because a lot on the left respond then just by saying that actually that's not critical race theory. Critical race theory is what Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell taught in law schools. Conservatives are really silly for saying they're teaching critical race theory in first grade. How could they? It's an abstract legal concept. That's a form of gaslighting. It's a form that, of actually dividing our country further by recognizing that certain people who may have valid concerns can't speak in the language of the elites and effectively belittling them and excluding them from discussion. I don't think that's healthy. But what I tell people on the right is don't even say critical race theory. Who cares about those three words? The thing that you may have a problem with is teaching kids in the classroom, whether they're oppressed or an oppressor when they're six years old, based on the color of their skin, whatever you want to call it, that's actually the problem you have. Stop saying critical race theory is what I often tell people on the right, because that at least allows us to get to the heart of the discussion and doesn't allow the, the you know, whatever Joy reads of the world, as she recently did on television about talking about how, how stupid conservatives are for not knowing what critical race theory is while they're, while they're talking about it. I think that that's actually the kind of thing that takes us in the wrong direction. I think what we need to be doing is talking more about actually, you know, what do we think should be taught in the schools? And one of the things that I think actually goes a long way towards that solution is actually transparency. I'm perfectly okay with, in fact, in favor of legislation that requires schools to make their full curriculums 
transparent, open, and on the internet. Because what you see happening is a lot of times this oppressor oppressed ideology finds its way into the curriculum, but once there's sunlight on it, it's like a cockroach. It goes back into hiding and they yeah. claim that they weren't teaching that. I say, let's have total transparency. And I think that that actually is the right way to go about then having the debate out in the open rather than secretively teaching one thing in school there was, and you're teaching another. There was a mother, I think, in and maybe it was Connecticut recently, who was trying to seek information from her school, uh, from her kid's difficult. school, about about what's in the curriculum. And the school said, well, if you want it, you're going to have to file a public records request and you're going to have to pay thousands of dollars in, in uh, processing fees in order to see what's and in you your kid's really curriculum. And you want to know what's really funny? I, I don't know if this is the Connecticut case or another one like it. It might have been the Connecticut case. When she did that and paid the money and went through the cumbersome process, a lot of it was redacted. There's no reason for the redaction. Redactions are usually exceptions for confidential information yes. or proprietary information that the FDA might use for a secret of medicine or something like that, or a trade secret. They're using redactions for public records to actually make it so, high what they're actually teaching. So I think transparency is actually the answer, not bans yeah. of ideology. No, I, 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 so I agree with, with uh, Vivek about, um, <clears throat> The fact that we we shouldn't be banning uh, schools of thought, um, I think, or texts. I think that that's you know that that is a really slippery slope. And you know, Vince, I think you agree more than you disagree because we have talked about this and schools that have banned Mark Twain and and things like that because they think the the language is offensive, rather than having a conversation about the language that was involved in it. Right. Um, I think that there is. And, and, you know, even in classrooms, and again, I, I teach in higher education, so it's a little bit different. I specialize in uncomfortable conversations. I think that <laughs> we, that's important. We know. <laughs> right. I, I think that's important. That that's, that's where we get somewhere. We don't get anywhere if it's like, oh, my God, we're talking about oppression. That's uncomfortable for me. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. Yeah. That's really snowflake. Like, like, I agree with you. Jason, can I ask you a question, though? Sure. So this is a great conversation. I'm really enjoying this, actually, because I don't always have an opportunity to engage in this way with people of diverse, actually diverse perspectives. Every so, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday uh, on YouTube or Facebook Watch, check out Vince and Jason Save the Nation. You will see more conversations with great it. people like Vivek. Uh, so just wanted to put that in there. This, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. That's what makes this a cool show. So, you know, I, I, I think that, yes, the left has a point when they say that, even when, when talking about critical race theory, especially in, in, in sort of high school and college education. But can I just reverse that for a second and make a claim and, and have you respond to it? You may disagree. Sure. I think that actually the greater silencer to this honest conversation and discussion isn't people's discomfort with being termed whether they're an oppressor or oppressed. It's people's fear of being called a racist. There is no greater damnation in modern America than to be called a racist. Ayanna Presley said it well. She said, we don't want any more black faces that don't want to be black voices. We don't want any more brown faces that don't want to be brown voices. And I think that that culture of fear that that creates of saying, if you say that I'm not racist today, that means you are racist. If you fail to capitalize the W in white or you, or you, you do capitalize W in white, or you fail to capitalize the B in black, you're also racist. There's no greater damnation in modern America than to be called a racist. So when given the choice between bending the knee to this new religion or being tarred with the scarlet R, everyday Americans are bending the knee. That I think is actually the greater silencer to discussion. And I'll give you kind of a first personal example. After the death of George Floyd last year, everyone in America, in corporate America, even people in my company were demanding an open conversation about race. 
I'm disappointed to say that what we saw follow was anything other than an open conversation. I know this because actually some, one of my own employees, many others as well, had privately emailed me saying that, hey, I, I'd love to share my views, but I'm going to opt out because I don't think that I feel comfortable as a white person speaking up because in my experience, that has usually resulted in me being tarred with a certain label. And I just think that you and I probably would agree based on the conversation we've already had that that shouldn't be the case. Where we might disagree though is, you know, I just think descriptively over at least the last year or the last couple of years, I think that a lot of the, a lot of the stifling of open debate culturally and creating the culture of fear of what we can and can't say has actually come from the progressive so-called woke left more so than it has come from the right. Though I am personally worried about seeing the right actually trying to copy the methods of the left and, and turn that culture war into a See, weapon that's used in reverse. That's kind of, do you disagree with that? No, no, I, so here's the thing. Um, and, it, and it goes back to an earlier point that I wanted to make. And that is when you talked about cancel culture and you made it seem like it started on the left, that's, you know, not exactly true. Um, I don't know about you know, where it started. I didn't claim that. I, if I did, I didn't, didn't intend to claim that. I think that in the last 10 years, I think it is most prevalent, especially the last five years, even most yeah, prevalent. And, I think I'm and, right. that, and that's the thing is that I think that the left is doing it, has done exactly what you're saying and both sides have done it. Because when I think about it in my lifetime, um, it was the idea that you, particularly in academic spaces, um, you couldn't talk about LGBT things. Like, you couldn't, you know, if, yeah. if you did that in a classroom, you were somehow abusing the children and you couldn't talk about, you know, two dads loving each other and raising a child and all the, those kinds of things. And they were going about trying to ban those kinds of texts and not have conversations about that. And I think, you know, uh, the left has reacted and saying we need to use the same tactics that they use. Yeah, and so yeah. it is, it, it's kind of gone into this kind of cyclical fashion. And I, I, I agree that. with you. I, I do think that there is, there's a difficult yet amorphous line between people. And this is where it's dangerous because it, it kind of goes into feelings. And I don't know what the answer is. I'm just going to put it out there. And that is, you know, you can wear a Trump hat. You can wear, you know, uh, whatever it is you want. But that kid walks into my classroom with a Confederate flag. And then some students might come to me and say, I felt intimidated. I felt scared. Then I have to think, can I allow that student to come into the classroom? I know what I want intellectually is to engage him. But I can't have students scared to come to class because some other student is intimidating them with what he has on or what he may say, or, yeah. you know, those kinds of things. So that's where people have to have this conversation, the line between free speech and hate speech and all those kinds of things. And my thing is you can hate all you want. I mean, you're free to do that, but there are certain settings where I think you cannot intimidate somebody else. I can't, well, I you think know. You, can, you should be able to threaten somebody else, but I think somebody's saying that they're intimidated by Trump. I mean, we're seeing that now spreading to including a Trump hat. We're seeing now potentially including the American flag in some settings that people are saying it's racist or evokes memories of a, of a racist past in America. You know, it's Nike canceled its Betsy Ross sneaker for 2019 on July 4th because Colin Kaepernick said it had the indicia of slavery attached to it. And I think that, you know, I'm picking examples that are particularly egregious, but to demonstrate the point that I think at least are egregious. But I think that 
the right answer to hate speech isn't less speech. It is more speech. Now, we have laws in this country that protect you from violence, that protect you from actual threats. Mm -hmm. But I think part of the thing about America is it's an idea. And the way we describe America affects the way America actually works. And the way we describe our ideals affects the way those ideals are actually implemented. It's like the equivalent of a principle in physics, the Heisenberg principle in physics, which says that the way you observe a phenomenon affects the way the phenomenon works. Well, I think the same is true in the social universe too. And I think that once we teach people to be victimized by the kinds of things that they hear that they disagree with, once we even have the, the, the notion of a black voice, right? Conflating someone's skin color with the content of their views, and label something that disagrees with the content of those views, then as racist, because race now is not just about the appearance of your skin color, but the content of your ideas. I think that's actually a really dangerous place that stifles solidarity. It stifles the exchange of ideas. And yes, the reason we have free speech isn't to protect the kind of speech that we don't find offensive. It is to protect the kind of speech that we find most offensive, the, the speech that we actually disagree with. And I think that democracy, the pursuit of truth, the American ideal itself depends on preserving that space where all ideas are welcome, whether so, or not we agree with them. And yeah, I think we could probably debate at which points in our history the left or the right was more guilty of violating that principle. I don't have a clear theory of the case of where it began and that one side was responsible. I do have a firm view that in the last five years, the nascent ascendant progressive left is by far the biggest perpetrator of cancel culture. As I said earlier, the use of force to replace free speech and open debate is settling political questions. But it doesn't matter which side is perpetrator is the perpetrator today, because it could be the other side tomorrow. We should want to revive a robust culture of free speech and open debate in so our country. Vivek, we need to start Vivek, talking openly again. Is it possible for our system to correct this then? So you mentioned uh, one idea, which is essentially to create a political ideology or affiliation yeah. as a protected class. There, there actually are a limited number of jurisdictions in the United States that do yeah. this. One of them is Washington, D.C., interestingly. It's one of the few places where political affiliation is a protected class. Maybe one of the few things D.C. does right. Um, but additionally, uh, how does our system grapple with this? You know, Because we talk about these gigantic corporations that are outside of the reach of electoral politics who are using their power to distort um, so many things in the United States, right? So the big tech companies, which have become our public commons, the place where we have the most robust debate and we get some sense of what the world actually looks like. For instance, Google, as you know, dominating more than 90% of the world's search is responsible for the impression that all of us have uh, for the most part, or at least what our neighbors have of how the world operates, right? So if you want an answer, you turn to this search engine, which has a monopoly on conversation and can dictate you know, what results appear and which results don't. And that has a that has a real impact on the nature of our debates, because those are the facts upon which we are all drawing. With that in mind, you know, normally we think of antitrust law as having to do with protecting the interests of consumers and having a thriving, robust marketplace and giving you options. But this isn't really a financial question, no. uh, although it's obviously intertwined. This is a question about the marketplace of ideas. Do we have a system that could protect against monopolies on ideas. So this is one of the things I talk about extensively in the book about why antitrust law is ill-fitted to this problem, where antitrust law is about protecting consumers from effectively being price gouged, to say that it prevents firms from using their market power to beget more market power in the marketplace of products. Here we're seeing a different phenomenon. Firms are using their power in the marketplace to flex their muscle in the marketplace of ideas. It is not a monopoly on products. It is a monopoly on ideas. 
and it's not even a monopoly on ideas, it is an ideological cartel. And if you have a thousand companies that are each small that adhere to that same cartel, or you have one company at the top that is a monopoly of that same set of ideas, it doesn't make a difference. The impact on free speech and open debate in our society is still the same. And so that's why I think even a lot of people on the sort of the populist right who think that antitrust law is somehow the solution breaking up big tech is gonna solve the problem. I'm actually an opponent. I don't think that I wanna live in a world, first of all, where the biggest companies in the world, uh, as far as tech companies go, are Chinese rather than American. That's not the world I wanna see. And putting even the China issue to one side, I think that if you just took the same Silicon Valley cart large behemoths and broke them up into a cartel of a bunch of smaller companies, that still doesn't solve the problem of censoring true speech and open debate in the marketplace of ideas. We need to deal with it in different ways. I personally favor Section 230 reform. So to say that if you have companies that are able to be immunized from liability for taking down speech that the government couldn't take down directly, then when they act in concert with the government, as they undoubtedly are today, there's no debate about that left. I wrote about that you know, starting uh, close to about half a year or a year ago. People said that was a conspiracy theory. That is no longer a conspiracy theory. It is as naked, as, as, as plain as day, that companies are working hand in glove with the government, responding to government threats in taking down hate speech and misinformation that the government doesn't want to see online. If it is state action in disguise, I say the constitution still applies. And if you're benefiting from a special form of government immunity to carry out through the back door what government can't do through the front door, then you are also bound by the same constraints as the US government itself, namely the constitution to the United States, including the first amendment to the constitution of the United States. So those are the kinds of solutions that I favor more rather than low resolution solutions like break them up. Yeah, I don't think that actually does much. So I, I wanna ask you Vivek, like, um... I have a couple of specific questions because uh, in reading about your book um, and, and, and listening to what you, you said a moment ago, um, you talked a little bit about like these, again, these spaces that were kind of uh, places that Americans came together. Um, like, as you know, I, I kind of disagree with that. Um, I don't know that there was ever a, a safe haven from politics in America and certainly not sport, but my question is, do you think that the NFL should compel uh, players to stop kneeling? No, um, no, is the answer to that question. Okay. I don't think so. I also don't, but I, but I don't like the culture that produces it. So I at once don't like it when Colin Kaepernick okay. and, and, and it, Colin Kaepernick less so, because at least he was sort of a, a true maverick when he did it. But the right. conformist culture of kneeling, I don't like it, but that doesn't mean that I think the NFL should compel them to stand. Okay, I like that. I like that answer. I have to I have to say that that's a fair answer. My other question is, what's your opinion of, say, Hobby Lobby? Because you talk a lot mm. about, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, religion, and you, you actually say that wokeness is actually is an actual religion. Yeah. And that, you know, of course, the uh, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act says that you cannot use your religion, uh, basically, as some form of tyranny over your your uh, employees. Uh, or customers. And I'm wondering what your opinion is of Hobby Lobby and their denial of covering birth, birth control um, due to the religious beliefs of the, of yeah. the ownership. So, so you're, asking, you're asking some great questions. Uh, so, so one of the theories I advance in the book is that wokeness actually meets the Supreme Court's test for a religion. I'm not going to go through it here, but if you go down the Supreme Court's test, it, it meets it to a T and then some. Even secular humanism has met the Supreme Court's test. Even creativity, a religion that professes white supremacy, has met the Supreme Court's test for religion. Well, anti-white supremacy, which is wokeness, you know, in a nutshell, I'm speaking in crude terms here, 
definitely meets the Supreme Court's test. You can read the book to go through the legal argument for why. And what I say is actually also well-regarded legal canon is that the religious discrimination prong of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act says that discrimination on the basis of religion isn't just about not discriminating against an employee for his or her religion. It also means the employer cannot force the employee to bow down to their religion. And that includes the woke religion every much as it, as it might mean a cross or the Quran. And so actually when somebody's fired for not adhering to that woke orthodoxy, that is a civil rights violation every bit as much as somebody is fired for being a member of the, of the wrong religion. So I think those are available today, novel legal arguments laid out for the first time in the book and you know, in other, in other stuff I've led, <clears throat> written, reading up to the write up of the book. That's something that I think people can really sink their teeth into. Now to your question about Hobby Lobby. So let's just take, you know, you, you could probably point to the hypocrisy of each side, but I'll frame it one way to start, although you could do a mirror image of it in reverse. You know, <laughs> Goldman Sachs declares from the mountaintops of Davos last year that it will not take a company public in the United States unless it meets Goldman's standards for board diversity. And by the way, like every one of these firms, they did not mean ideological diversity. They don't care if their board thinks the way the rest of America thinks. They just want to make sure that their board looks the way the rest of America looks. Yet liberals cheer that and yet are, are, are strongly opposed to Hobby Lobby, which says that was a case that actually permitted an employer to decide what, what, what was included and not included in their employee health plans, including contraception, which was that issue in this case. So look, I think that the civil rights statutes get a couple of things right. One of them is that they have sizes of firms that they apply to, okay? They, are, they don't apply to small family businesses that employ fewer than a certain number of people, maybe something like 20 people, a small business, you know, call it a cake shop. That doesn't apply in the same way that it does to a business of a certain size that exercises a certain, more, certain amount of power in the market and not only in the market, but in our society at large because of the market power they wield. You, know, you could debate the exact specifics, but if you're gonna have civil rights statutes at all, I think that that's actually a reasonable litmus test to apply. And so I think that fundamentally Goldman Sachs is different than a family owned arts and crafts store. If it was a one person shop with 20 people in you know, the middle of central Ohio, I don't think that our non-discrimination statutes need to treat those two firms as, as though they were the same as one another. Now, all of that being said, I actually think that Hobby Lobby isn't uh, tiny farm family owned arts and crafts store anymore. It is, it, it is a chain. Uh, it's, it's a chain yeah. that has, it's a real player in the economy. It is definitely covered by our civil rights statutes. Then you just get into the very specifics of if they said that somebody couldn't work at the firm unless they adhered to Christian ideology, including the Catholic church's position on abortion, I think you have the same problem that many, many companies have today by saying that you can't work here if you actually voice opinions that run counter to what we teach in our mandatory diversity and inclusion training sessions, which are really just pushing Ibram Kennedy's and Robin D'Angelo's agendas under a corporate banner. Now, I think that you would have that problem. Now, does an employer have an obligation to cover contraception? No, they don't. So on those narrow grounds, I think that I don't think that their behavior was technically illegal. But the spirit of your question, I think it ought to apply evenly in all directions. And that much I agree with. Yeah, you know, it's uh, what an interesting thing that you just brought up that I'm going to try and remember forever is that the Civil Rights Act does make delineations between these small and large organizations. Uh, and I think that's meaningful because right now, you know, it's it's uh, it's the big it's the big organizations wielding unbelievable power that I'm the most concerned about. It's not the small places because, you know, as a consumer, I've got options. If I don't like your politics or if I don't like, 
you know, the way you treat your customers, I can go somewhere else by and large for the small yeah. businesses, but the big ones, the ones that have a market distorting it's power, it's uh, different. those are the ones I'm very concerned about. It's different. And one of the things I will say about, I haven't talked about this in other forms, but you guys seem to be able to, you know, really go, go real deep here is actually, it's not just an act of hypocrisy to me that we have protected classes for race, sex, religion, national origin, but not for political belief. I actually think if you trace the history of the bureaucracies in what I call deep corporate, the equivalent of deep state, but you know, I sort of play on that in corporate America, the rise of deep corporate, including the HR and administrative bureaucracies that administer a lot of these so-called diversity and inclusion agendas in, in corporate America, they actually trace back to being compliance bureaucracies with the civil rights statutes in the first place. That is, if you actually trace the history over 50 years or 60 years now, we've actually come full circle where anti-discrimination on the basis of race or sex or religion actually has now morphed into not just a, an agenda that prohibits racism, but that promotes anti-racism, a, a well-titled ideology that actually means a lot more than it sounds like. And those bureaucracies are actually creating the very conditions of political intolerance in the first place. And so I don't think we would have the level of political intolerance or the level of political discrimination that we see, but for the very bureaucracies that were originally created in the wake of the civil rights statutes that created protected classes in the first place, maybe with good intentions originally, certainly with good intentions originally, but which have morphed to become far more than they were ever imagined to have become 60 years ago. And so I think it's not an accident that actually we live in the worst of all worlds where maybe the market would do a better job of policing all forms of discrimination if it actually operated like a market. Maybe we need to apply those standards evenly and actually include the, one of the most rampant forms of political of discrimination we see today, which is political discrimination created in part by the actual bureaucracies that were supposedly administering the non-discrimination along the other axes. But now we live in the worst of both worlds where actually we've created the perfect conditions for political discrimination, which we see today, but without any protection for people who actually suffer from political discrimination in our economy. So one of the things that you talk about in, in your book, um, you have a little bit of a, of a conversation about like uh, police brutality and you say the police are being neutered. Um, and it just, you know, what you were just saying kind of made a, a hypothetical come into, you know, my mind. And I, I will say this, when I do news hits, which are usually really short, that's one of the reasons I don't do this. I don't engage hypotheticals. <laughs> I refuse to yeah. do that. I'm like, it's a hypothetical. I think it's a gotcha question. I'm like, I'm not answering that. But I do have this hypothetical and I really am genuinely interested in what you think. Okay. Um, you say political thought should not be punished in, in essentially in the workplace. What about people who are uh, provide a public service? So for example, a white supremacist teacher or a white supremacist police officer, that is their political belief. Yeah. Um, should they be allowed to participate, or maybe we can take race out of it, maybe a Christian scientist doctor, mm -hmm. should they be allowed to, uh, uh, to have, to hold their beliefs and still be trusted to do their jobs without bias when in fact, we know from their political beliefs that they have biases? So, so I, thank you for asking that. And I think the answer, to the question is going to be, yes, I think they should be permitted to hold their posts without any more facts on the table. Now, if they actually act on the basis of that in a way that violates other st statutes, laws, protections we have, they should be fired for their actions. 
but not for their alleged beliefs or what you construct or you or I construct to be their beliefs. And by the way, my answer is the same for the alleged white supremacist for the same reason that it's the same answer for the alleged Christian scientist or, or Church of Scientology member. And actually under, under current law, we definitely acknowledge that religious beliefs are protected. All I would say is treat political beliefs the same. Now, what is it, you know, I wanna, I wanna talk about this discussion about white supremacy a little bit. And, and just one point about the book, I actually don't, you know, sort of uh, belittle the problem of police brutality. So I don't know which part of the book you got that from. All I take aim at a little bit is, is when, we, when we say clear the jails, are we really helping the very people we're supposed to have helped when we said clear the jails, including black people in poor communities? I don't think we're helping them. I think that's what I said in the book, but I just wanted to you know, correct that. Okay, yeah, no. I'll, for a second, but, but to come fair, back to the fair point, enough. But to come back to the point that you were making, look, let's just talk about white supremacy for a second. I, I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm just speaking super freely here. And, and so feel free to also push back. Sure. I'm getting a little bit tired of hearing about the problem of white supremacy in America. When I look at every major institution, like I said, I wasn't born into lead America, but I've lived it. And if I look at our universities, our schools, our companies, our elite nonprofits, our philanthropies, our museums, I don't see a single one that's populated with white supremacists running the show. I do see a lot of them that are populated by woke supremacists that are leading the show. And so the idea that we are somehow obsessed with the figment of white supremacy as this phantom problem in America, when in fact the agenda of intolerance from the other side is actually what runs the show in every institution or nearly every institution that matters in our country is I think a laughable fixation that actually ignores the real threat to classical liberal values. And that's I think something we all on this, on this show right now care about yeah. is preserving classical liberal values that define what it means to be American and a free American that threat could have come and did come at points in our history from white supremacy in the past. But fixating on that in a moment where we are blind to where that actual real threat comes from people who hold the keys to power in every one of our institutions is I think, is I think you know, getting to the point of being laughable. Now that's not to say that reject your hypothetical because I say that's not a real problem. It was a hypothetical. So let me engage with it. I think the, the, even on the hypothetical of somebody who's an alleged white supremacist First of all, I have a lot of questions. What does it mean to be a white supremacist exactly? Because I, I see a lot of definitions flying around that I right. think we ought to unpack. That's but fair. let's say it's somebody who actually believes that white people are inherently superior and more morally worthy than black or brown or non-white people simply because of the color of their skin. That's what I think about the definition of white supremacy. Let's say somebody holds those views. Should they be ineligible to hold a job on account strictly of that belief? That's a tough question. I still come out on the side of the answer is they shouldn't be banned from holding that job. Certainly not so long as we also have other protected classes for discrimination on the basis of race or sex or religion. So and I'll tell you why, because let's say that person is then responsible for hiring somebody else and doesn't hire them because they're black. He's violating another law that actually protects somebody from being discriminated against on the basis of the color of their skin. And that's why I think we can either have a world in which we have no protected classes at all and trust the market to get it right, or we can have one in which we add political belief and political expression to that list. But right now we live in actually an unfair application of that more fundamental principle of non-discrimination. That's where I come out. So let me, let me just uh, address one thing. Number one, I think you're absolutely correct about the way that white supremacy is defined and the way that it's used colloquially. I think I used it in a colloquial sense when I said white supremacist. I actually don't call individuals white supremacists. Um, you know, white nationalists, you, you can come up with a, a, a host of other uh, terms, but white supremacy is an actual political system. 
And I think that, you know, to call individuals white supremacists actually lets the system off the hook. But when we were talking about the individual, now, I, I think that, you know, this is the difficult thing because, you know, it is true that facts aren't feelings or feelings aren't facts, I should say. Um, but if a student who we are expecting to learn, we see the teacher rolls up, some say there's a Jewish student and a teacher rolls up their sleeve and they see a swastika tattooed on their forearm. Is that student going to be able to learn in the same way that they would have if they thought that the teacher was somewhat neutral, even if the teacher is neutral? And, and so I think that there, there are a lot of things to go with there. And yeah. also, how do you prove, this is the difficulty of all of this, even with you know, why the EEOC denies so many claims of discrimination is because let's say that per teacher or becomes a principal or uh, an instructional coach and they hire another teacher and they're a white supremacist, that's their political belief, it's protected, uh, or a white nationalist, that's their political stand and, and they are a protected class. And they make a hire and they have, you know, a, a black person, an Indian person, and a white person, and they hire the white person. How do you prove that they discriminated against the black person and the Indian person? Because it mm -hmm. may have been a situation where you or I were in that same seat and we would have hired the white person. Yeah, so it's it, difficult to actually gauge that. So, so look, and, and I think the same applies to somebody who is a black nationalist with respect to hiring a white person too. Uh, but, 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 you know, I think that let's sort of say that just for the sake of, I think I'm- Yeah, and, and I, 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 I think black, black nationalists right. and white nationalists are not a one-to-one -one comparison, but we can talk about that another-, another but, 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 I, but I'm just, I'm sort of making the point that, that you know, I'm, your right. principle, the principle you're raising could apply in every direction before I tell you what the answer is, which is to say that I still think that so long as we have protected classes for race, sex, religion, and national origin, we, we are strictly better off having one for political discrimination as well. And that at least to me coheres in a way that the market version could also cohere to say that we trust the market to get it right. I don't think we can create the conditions for political discrimination the way we are without actually protecting it. I also think that uh, there was a point that, that Vince made earlier is that actually we have a lot of states that have, and even Washington DC, that have non-discrimination statutes on the basis of political belief today. We don't see a rampant crisis of people showing up to school with swastikas. I think that in a certain sense of pragmatism here too, we actually have a great answer to the question. Now you could ask the question in reverse. Well, why am I so obsessed with this if it's such a big problem if many states are already protecting it? Well, first of all, not all of them do. But second, I actually think it is an opportunity to be able to make a national statement by including it in our civil rights statutes. Because there's all kinds of state level non-discrimination statutes for race, sex, and religion too. But I think there's something special about the national statement we make to say that as a country, we in the United States do not believe that somebody should have to make the choice between showing their racial or gender or sexual orientation identity and being able to put food on the dinner table. That is not a choice that we force you to make in America. You, know, you get to do both of those things. Well, well I guess wanna, what? I'll, I think that we don't force you to make the choice between expressing yourself politically and putting food yeah. on the dinner table either. This is the country where you get to do both those things. And I think it's a matter of national expression that we actually make that statement affirmatively. And we have great data now showing it's actually not that big of a problem, the Nazi or the swastika problem, which, which I think in theory could, could exist. And I come out on one side of that debate, but I think that yeah, I want to be really careful about painting that as the, the tail that wags the dog of this debate, because it really is a tail that hasn't wagged the dog in the states that actually have those political protection 
statutes. So let me, I want to raise um, something that I, that in using Jason's two hypotheticals that he raised during our conversation uh, today. Uh, one of them was uh, that if a student walked into his classroom wearing a Confederate flag t-shirt, uh, that he would engage him on, on why he was doing that and the two of them could have a conversation. But Jason also stipulated that it's possible in this hypothetical that there would be students who would come to Jason perhaps privately and indicate uh, that they were uncomfortable, that they became fearful by the fact that somebody had worn a Confederate flag shirt into the classroom. The other that Jason raised was this idea that somebody would roll up their sleeve and have a swastika tattoo on their forearm, and that might lead a student uh, to being uh, fearful or, or, or somehow um, concerned about the quality of education that they're receiving. By the way, anyone I think should be rightly concerned about the quality of education they're receiving if the guy rolls up his sleeve and has a swastika on his arm. But setting that aside, what was the implication in what Jason said, not just the implication, the declaration of what Jason said, was that in both cases that there was some sort of panic from the students in question uh, that needs to be protected by a higher authority, that the government should, should or, or at least our culture, should have some way of policing all of this because, uh, you know, on behalf of the student. And when in, in laying down those hypotheticals, Jason, I couldn't help but think in both cases, why are the students here so fragile? And there's something I think culturally going on right now that can't be redressed even by uh, the solutions that Vivek is presenting that would fix that issue, which is that like we've, we've created a society in, in, in 2021 where it seems like we're talking college students now, adults, um, need to be protected from uncomfortable moments that they can't, that, they, that they're just too fragile to grapple with those moments for themselves. Uh, and I think that's the wrong way for us to view the country, that we should instill in people a sense of self-reliance, an ability to confront uncomfortable situations, to be able to look at people who are objectively losers, like the ones you're describing, and assess that and say, of course, I'm confident and comfortable with who I am. And of course, I can assess that that guy's a loser and I can, I can confront him. I can have conversations with him. But we've, I think we've tried to give people an easy way out of confrontation uh, by saying, don't worry, mommy and daddy are going to save you in the form of the government. Uh, from having uncomfortable moments. And I think that that is, there's a path to tyranny there where you're asking for a higher authority to intercede on all uncomfortable moments and to dictate uh, only pleasant outcomes. Um, I think that makes us a less capable society broadly. I'm mostly very sympathetic to that. And I, I actually, you know, maybe I'll lose you here too, Vince, but uh... You know, I think the American way is exactly what you described. I think there's an even higher calling to potentially not even have to label somebody as a loser just because they adopted a particular worldview that was pernicious. People aren't people as human beings are even more than the product of their worldviews on a given day. And somebody may have gotten a swastika tattoo and because a tattoo doesn't come off, the tattoo still shows up. But True. they have changed their worldview since the time they got their tattoo, right? I mean, the movie American History X is based on that premise, but whatever. I think that I think that, that that's demanding. I think that that patriotism and revival of Americanism gets to the stop that you mentioned, which is, I think, a good first stop for us to get to first, which is graduating from a cultural fragility that demands that we protect grown adults from ideas that they disagree with. And then I think hopefully we can go to a common humanity that arises beyond that to, to recognize that people as human beings are worthy of respect for reasons that go far beyond their views on a given day, even if those views are, are heinous 
at the time they hold them. But that's that's uh, you know that's two steps farther from where we need to get. And I think that focusing on the place, getting to the place you said, would for me today at least be a happy enough place for us to get as a culture. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna disagree with you know, with with that uh, in terms you guys both. Uh, I, I do appreciate your grace in terms of uh, people that you politically disagree with, um, you know, in terms of someone with a swastika tattoo or, or is a white nationalist or whatever political uh, affiliation. And we, we certainly don't punish aff affiliation generally, but you're also not entitled to a job. That's, that's a thing, you know, Vince and I have gone back and forth on, on a couple of different issues. Um, is that you are you are certainly entitled to your freedoms. Like I would never say that the person with the swastika tattoo can't go to a hospital and get treated because we don't like their political views or they shouldn't be able to call the police if they're robbed or, you know, their house is on fire. They, you know, that we should completely ostracize them from society and they shouldn't be able to take advantage of all the things that every other citizen takes care of you know I, i'm a believer in universal jason, with, jason jason yeah. that's a really nuanced position i really like it let me just let me just sort of because we're getting further in this conversation than i've ever gotten i think in this dialogue <laughs> about this subject i am with you i don't think anybody has a right to a job and right. certainly not on account of of having political perspectives that may be may be controversial on a given job to say the least if not downright heinous however I, I, I caveated everything I've said, and I want to be really precise about the way I said it, but now you're forcing me to call out the distinction. In a world in which race, sex, sexual orientation, religion, and national origin are also protected and give you the same entitlement to a job in a way that your political belief doesn't. And I guess my question for you is, how do you, why is it that you feel that somebody's open expression of their sexual orientation or somebody's open expression of their religion somehow ought to be protected in a way that their political belief ought not be? That's really the question. That's a really fair question. I, I, I have to say um, that that is a fair question. And I think that we, we do, on, on, in some respects, have uh, societal norms. If I, if I see someone come in with, with a yarmulke, you know, I have no problem with that. You know, I think that that's, you know, yeah, but, uh, but, or, but, or, or- If I may, just to, just to really put you on the defense here for a second. Yeah, sure. <laughs> If I just use your exact phrasing, but just to just to substitute sure. uh, uh, one, make one crucial substitution, somebody is totally free to be openly and flamboyantly gay, and they shouldn't be denied their health care or their right to call the police if someone's robbing them. But mm -hmm. that doesn't mean they have a right to a job. You agree or disagree with that? Because that's exactly what you said, subbing, making that substitution. So your your question, say that say that one more time. So so you you said okay, somebody can be. Or openly a white nationalist, and they could still soon be denied healthcare when they show up in a hospital or in the emergency room. But that doesn't mean that they have a right to a particular get a particular job. Okay, that's your statement. That, that's My correct. Question, so, so let me let me answer. Openly oh. flamboyantly gay or okay. openly member of some religion does the same thing. Where do you fall on that? So, so my my belief is that um, a person who is openly gay, to my understanding, um, is not part of their open gayness is not to uh, discriminate or believe they are superior or perhaps uh, someone, you know, if you are getting a grade 
you're not going to be like, well, I'm a straight person, so I'm going to get a, a bad grade because this person is flamboyantly gay or this person is openly Jewish or this person's wearing But it offends somebody's or, moral sensibilities, though, that, that to say that, that marriage is between a man and a woman and they're committing a biblical Yeah, but, but it's not, out. again, you, you can't make a logical argument that you will not be treated fairly because someone is Jewish or, or openly, you know, you can see that they're Jewish or someone is, uh, you know, what was the, open, you know, flamboyantly gay. You can't make a logical argument that that could lead to discrimination, particularly when the large majority yeah, but why is that of, the, of the world- Why, why that, did that but, become the decision rule of whether or not at least discrimination is the basis for whether or not something does or doesn't get to count as a protected class? Like that, that, that there's many bad things in the world. Discrimination is one of them. Right. One of them, one of the metrics you mentioned was feeling safe or comfortable and being able to learn effectively. And, and right. personally, I'm of the view that, by the way, just to be crystal clear, I don't think yeah. somebody should be subject to discrimination because they're gay. But I'm, I'm just using that to sort of yeah, no, 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 we get it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I um, and, and I think your your argument is a solid one. I, it's it's one that I think that you're making a comparison between being openly gay and being a white nationalist that has a swastika tattooed on them or, or something like that. I think that that's not a good analogy because you know you can openly see that someone is hostile to your race or religion, and therefore, if they're teaching my you know my fourth grader, I'm going to be yeah. a little concerned about that. That my fourth grader is not going to get the quality of education that they should. Let me, um, or that they'll be treated in, unfairly or subject to unfair Jason, more discipline. Because, um, gentlemen, I want to throw in a relevant. You can't do that with openly gay. I want to throw in a relevant um, hypothetical here. Sure. How about a Catholic school that hires a flamboyantly, openly gay fourth grade teacher or that that teacher wants a job there? Said, hey, look, you know, there's not that many schools available right now. There is a job opening right here for a fourth grade teacher. I'm going to apply to it. Does that Catholic school, which has a whole, you know, which, which again, not only is teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, but Catholic social teaching to the kids in that classroom, do they have an obligation uh, to hire that teacher? Uh, and should that teacher's homosexuality be a protected category in the case of that? Yeah, Jason, I think this is mostly a question, mostly a question for you. Okay, yeah, so I, I would say, um, again, flamboyant behavior, um, that is a really, really amorphous and, and you know, to say, hey, I don't like the way the person does so their wrist. so is white wrist. nationalist, by the way, though. You know, no, not a, not a, a swastika tattoo is pretty clear. You yeah, know, but, or, okay. or that, go ahead and, and I'll or, have a comment or, for you, but go ahead, go ahead. Or, you know, a swastika tattoo, assuming that they are not Hindu and it's not a Hindu symbol, uh, uh, a swastika <laughs> tattoo is pretty clear. And I think um, affiliation with certain groups is pretty clear, but I, I would say uh, flamboyantly gay, like I don't like the way he moves. I think it's really dangerous. I think that's a, that's a really slippery slope. Or I don't like the lisp that he talks with. By the way, I've known some really, you know, super straight men who, yeah, if you saw them walking like, around, you'd probably yeah. be like, that so guy's gay. And, and you know, they're- I just think, know. by the way, I just want to stipulate, I think flamboyantly gay is one of my favorite phrases in the English language. I just, yeah, it, I just it's, I just, it's evocative. I actually, actually took it from a comedian. I, I, I had a... Uh, 
I had a very failed stint, I would say, as a stand-up comedian before I started my comedy, before I started my uh, company. And uh, there was there was this comedian in New York City who said something like, you know, I don't mind if you're gay, but I mind if you're flamboyant. And then, uh, <laughs> this is this is back in like mid mid like 2013 when people would still laugh at a joke like that. But uh, but anyway, <laughs> but th- that being said, Jace, I, I just want to come back to now a meta point, which is actually I think the even the more important point than getting to these. And Jason, you said it about hypotheticals, but hypotheticals are cool because they kind of get to the nit and grit of issues, but there's one downside to hypotheticals too. And it's not just that you can get trapped in a rabbit hole. Right. It's that you can get trapped in a rabbit hole for forgetting about what the real issue is in the lived experience of, for example, in American society today. And for all of, just, just, just to take, for all of the time we have spent on discussing the curious case of the swastika, I don't think that presents itself as a practical, actionable issue nearly as much as actually, for example, the gay teacher, or even nearly as much as the teacher who's actually forcing students to bow down to the new woke religion, which for all the reasons I lay out in my book, does actually, I think, meet the Supreme Court's test for religion and meets even our colloquial understanding of, in many cases, what counts as a religion. And I think that, I want want to hear your response, Jason, to the point I made earlier, which is that for all the discussion about you know, white nationalism and swastikas. What about the reality of the dogma that is being pushed through corporate America, through universities, through our public schools, through our charter schools, through our museums, through our philanthropies under the banner of diversity, equity, inclusion, and Ibram Kendi style anti-racism? Doesn't it feel a little, and, and, and the answer might be no to you, but doesn't it feel a little misplaced to disproportionately focus on the curious case of the swastika without actually addressing what the real, talking about wokeness being about waking up to power structures. Why don't we wake up to the woke power structure instead? And I think that that actually is the new invisible power structure we need to wake up to today. I did wanna wanna answer that. And I think it goes back to to the idea in your book is that um, a lot of the people who are in charge of these, of these corporations, for example. And if you look at the Board of Regents, please don't fire me, University of Maryland, but the Board of Regents at the University of Maryland, which is, I believe, chosen by the governor. And they are the people who are the real decision makers. It's not the faculty senate. It's not any of that. It's not even the president of the university, who now is, you know, an African-American man. Uh, And I don't really know his politics either. Very nice man. But the the real people who, who are the real decision makers at at least at my university is the board of regents yep and they are chosen by the governor and they are you know our governor in in the the state of maryland is a republican and they are very conservative so this idea just because you had you know some ta or some grad student who's a, a a gay woke leftist black you know transgender whatever you know, all those categories, and you're like, oh my God, look, the woke people are taking over. The real decision makers oftentimes are wealthy, and the wealthy people are looking out for the interests of wealthy people. And a lot of times they are male, older, white, and conservative. Well, here's so, what and, we agree. And I think they're wealthy and they're looking after the interests of wealthy people. There were in a hundred percent alignment. And I actually think one of the things, here's the only part where we disagree, one of the big areas where we disagree is 
Actually, one of the ways that wealthy people are able to protect the interests of wealthy people is to talk more about microaggressions on the basis of race and sex and sexual orientation. And everyone sure. on both sides is missing that show. And I will tell you that I live in central Ohio today. I was born and raised in Southwest Ohio. I can't remember the last time in my adult life that I saw someone with a swastika tattoo, but I can tell you, I have gone to Harvard and Yale and worked in hedge funds and worked in venture-backed companies and founded tech companies and operated in biotech and in Silicon Valley and serve on the board of a bunch of nonprofits in the philanthropy roundtable. I can tell you that I do see the woke ideology at work and I think it is far more pervasive as an invisible power structure than the curious case of the swastika. Maybe that's just a product of the environments that I've been in, but it's why I wrote the book that I did. And I think that, you know, personally, do I think that there's a version of a power structure on the other side that could be equally suppressive of classical liberal norms? Of course there can be because history teaches that's happened many times where white nationalism or white supremacy has been a major problem in creating a power structure that oppressed the true freedoms that all of us can enjoy as a people. I just don't think that's the moment we're living in now. And I think the thing that was cool about wokeness and even critical theory when it was born decades ago is that it was challenging an invisible power structure that few others saw. And the irony is that actually it's precisely when that's become dominant that that has created a new power structure of its own that's part of the one that I'm calling out in the book. And so, you know, that's not to say that it's an all or nothing or, or a, uh, you know, a, a, a clear litmus test black white issue. But I think that the pendulum has swung far enough in the other direction that, that that's part of what I view let my me, responsibility as calling out. So I'll, let I'll, me, let me, oh, go ahead. Okay, I, I, I just, just want to say one thing to that. Okay, can go I, for it. Can Jesse. I just say yep. really quickly? And, and that is, I, I agree with, with most of what you said. The only thing that I, that I would add to that is that wokeness, uh, you know, has been essential. Well, I was going to use a word that would probably get me in trouble with woke people. I was going to say it's been castrated. I, I, I think wokeness uh, has been taken, uh, has been transformed and all of its power has been taken out. So when you talk about critical theory- and Neutered, and, and we could say, yeah. Neutered, thank you, neutered. That's the word I was looking for. And I was thinking, <laughs> what do we do to dogs? Yeah. You know, we essentially castrate them, but yeah, neutered. Um, so we, we take a lot, a lot of the potency and we neuter or spay, 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 whatever. Uh, the, um, you know, the, the power that was in uh, those tools for actually questioning the power structures that exist. And again, I think that there is um, a lot of this, like you said, or, or what I think that you're getting at is that this is all performative, but it's not something that actually is looking for actual change. And I think that there are people on the far left who would enjoy some elements of your book and people of course on the right who would like your book. Uh, and I think a lot of people on the, on the farther end of the left would agree with it and understand that liberal small incremental changes don't really produce a whole lot. And so a lot of these corporations are willing to do that or willing to give you something that's actually disingenuous. I think something that I read about um, that you wrote in the book was um, about some campaign from a company about like free girls or so, I, yeah. I don't remember the exact thing, but you know, really they were doing nothing 
to help women. And, you know, as they a built a fact, statue for women after the women in the company sued them for not paying them enough as much as the men. Right. And the, to top it off, the woman who made the statue was so inspired by it that she made other copies of the statue and they sued her for making unauthorized reproductions of the statue they paid for. So right. It, and they never it, increased the pay, right? They never yeah, exactly, actually, exactly. They so, just built the statue. Exactly. So again, it, it is performative, it is virtue signaling. Yeah. And that, you know, until we're really, and if you want to go to critical theory, the whole thing is that incremental change and critical race theory in particular, incremental change doesn't work. You have to make big structural changes. Outside so, of corporate America being responsible for it. So, so that much, I think I can agree with the far left and the, you know, the content of what those changes are, we might debate it. I just say, let's debate it openly in the public square and have at it and yeah. respect, respect intellectual views across the spectrum. So, so I was going to raise something that I just saw recently, a new story. And uh, thank you, Vivek, for uh, your generous uh, offering of your time today. Absolutely. Um, which is, you know, we talk about um, wokeism and, you know, you've obviously talked about it as having a distorting effect on the country. Uh, it's in to and the extent to which it's just, it's insincere coming from corporate America. Um, but also it's not just... It's also just, it's not a benign distraction. It, there's there are dam there's very damaging consequences, I think, to some of those, um, because the ideology itself has gotten to places like the American military. Uh, and and a recent expression of this was, um, you know, last year during the Trump administration, the Navy and the Marine Corps uh, decided to get rid of photos in the promotion packages of officers. Of, of uh, naval and Marine Corps officers. So normally what happens is when they submit their package to be promoted, they include all of their, you know, their particulars, their fitness reports and, you know, their, their, their physical fitness tests, all that stuff, how the, their recommendations, how they performed in their jobs, you know, that kind of thing, all the paperwork. Plus they would append a photo to the package of themselves. And that was the requirement before. Well, the army and the Navy last year in, an, in the interest of getting rid of uh, what's known as quote, unconscious bias, said, well, we need more minority officers uh, going up to the ranks. So we're going to get rid of the photos to prevent the promotion boards from being prejudiced against minority candidates for, for promotion. So they, they get rid of the photos entirely and then begin judging them based only on the paperwork. But the end result, which we just discovered a couple of weeks ago, was that the Navy and the Marine Corps are now dissatisfied. They said not enough minority candidates were being promoted. In other words, strictly on paper, uh, they were deciding more often than not to choose people that weren't minorities and there were white candidates who were um, getting promoted. So now they want to bring the photos back so that mm. they can establish racial preference uh, in making these selections. In other words, it's, it's not as much of a meritocracy as it is. Uh, they're, they're, they want to build racial prejudice into this. Yeah. It reminds me, affirmative reminds me a lot of the blind auditions debate where, where they effectively decided there were too many Asians in orchestras and they uh, first wanted, they implemented blind auditions to make sure there wasn't discrimination. But now there's a movement led by the woke left, by the way, to, to get rid of blind auditions because they're actually racially discriminatory. So, you know, I, I think that, I think, I think you make a good point. But I, at, the end, at the end of the day, I think that the number one issue I care about is being able to debate these issues out in the open. Yeah. Where everyone's voice is weighted equally, where you can speak freely, have conversations like the one we're having here across America, including in ways that aren't tainted by the threat of getting a bad grade in school or the threat of getting fired from your job. If we get to that place, even if it, even if we don't settle the questions in the way that I would prefer, I'm still a happy man and a happy American. Yeah. And that's where I wanna to get to. And I wanna thank you guys for, for having me today. And this was, was probably one of the most fun discussions I've had in a setting like this one. So thank you guys for, for making it happen. Of course.